Take your Bibles, if you would, and join me today in Romans chapter number three, Romans chapter number three. If you have listened carefully or maybe not so carefully over the last few years, you know that I enjoy walking in the morning and those walks usually include my dog, Sadie. So yesterday morning, Sadie and I were walking through some wooded area in our neighborhood. There's a looping trail around our neighborhood and and you could go actually several miles on these trails and we've done these trails on numbers of occasions. And so we began to walk on the trails early yesterday morning. Now I've enjoyed those hikes immensely, but I will tell you yesterday, I did not enjoy my hike on the trail for two reasons in particular. Reason number one was, I don't know why or, or what the, the, the seasonal aspect of this is, but there were cobwebs everywhere on the trail. And so as you're walking, have you ever walked through a cobweb and once you do, it feels like it's everywhere on your head, okay? So I'd walk through and like, oh, there's a cobweb and so now I've, they're everywhere, you know, and then I take a few more steps and another cobweb. It's like, I don't know, it's like the, uh, uh, some telegram went out to all spiders, like they have some, forgive this, worldwide web. And so, <laughs> sorry about that one. And so they were everywhere and that was bothersome, but it wasn't the most bothersome. There was something else that started not long after we started on our walk on the trails. The cobwebs, they were everywhere, but, but there was a fly that made me his singular object and focus in life. And he started at the beginning of the trail and he, he buzzed and bothered me through the whole trip on this trail. I mean, and I'm swatting at him and you can almost hear his little fly laugh saying, nice try, you know, and, and, and he's buzzing my ear and he's buzzing my head and, and he calls his friends and they're all around. And I actually named him because we'd established this relationship. And so I called him Beelzebub. The Lord of the Flies, and, and I mean, this guy's dive-bombing me. It was unrelenting and inescapable. Now, to draw some parallel for us today, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, has made absolutely sure that we have not missed the point that we cannot escape the web of our own sinful dilemma. It's almost as if anywhere you turn on the trail in the book of Romans, you walk through another one of those unmistakable, undeniable webs of our own sinful making. And beyond this, the message of our impossible predicament has been unrelenting and the grip held on us by our own sin seems inescapable. Paul has buzzed and plagued the moral man, the religious man, the Gentiles, and yes, the Jews. And swat as we may, there seems to be no escaping the fact that we all stand sinful before God. We have said often that the darkest time is just before the breaking of day. And in this passage of Romans, it got very dark. 
Have you ever been in a setting where the darkness could almost be felt? Maybe you were on some tour of a cave and, and you began to, to go deeper into the recesses of the cave. And, and when you did, the guide that is with you finally says, now we're going to turn off all the lights. And at times they may even ask you to hold on to the wall or some, some steadying agent that would be close because when all the lights go out, it is so dark that it's disorienting. And in this passage in the book of Romans, it is almost disorienting. Paul with, with this rapid fire just hits us from one place to the next, to the next, to the next. And we may have felt like it has been dark up until this point in the book of Romans, but it is a darkness that can be felt. With one last push, just before the breaking of dawn, Paul again paints our dilemma. Let's begin by looking at the dilemma today. And then we'll move beyond. Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse number 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Unless there be any confusion in this room today, lest there be any confusion regarding those who may be joining us, this is an all-inclusive dilemma. There is none, and you and I are not part of the, 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 the remnant, the very few that escape this. There's not one. This includes people exactly like you just like me. And if this wasn't enough, the Apostle Paul goes beyond. And notice what he continues to say. Verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the dilemma. And notice how he begins to just break it down. The first thing he says is we're doomed. Look again, verse number 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no. Make no mistake about it, not one. We're doomed, but he doesn't stop there. He says we're dense. Verse number 11, there is none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. And then he goes on and he says we're distant. Verse number 12, they are all gone out of the way. We, we now are in some remote place. And then he goes beyond this and he says we're depleted. Verse number 12 again, they are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. He says we're decaying. Their throat is an open sepulcher. It's as if the grave has opened and that which is rotten inside is fully exposed. And then he says we're deceitful. Again, verse number 13, with their tongues they have used deceit. And he says we're dangerous. 
Again, number ver- verse number 13, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We're dangerous. And then he concludes this tirade by saying, we're delusional. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That they are so personally deluded that they just seem to dance through life as if there is never coming a day when they will stand before a holy God and give account. This is quite a list. We're doomed, dense, distant, depleted, decaying, deceitful, dangerous, destructive, and delusional. And we might say, is there anything else? And to that we might add, yes, we're dead in trespasses and in sin. We are totally, undeniably separated from God. Clearly, God's intention was not to help us feel better about ourselves. It seems to be the cry of the day that that we come and and we sit and oftentimes we, we want to feel better. There is a place of feeling better in Scripture. But before we can truly feel better, we have to, to feel or maybe a better way to express that is think accurately. God's intention when he begins to expose us for who we are is not saying, hey, I'm saying all of this to make you feel better. Have you ever, have you ever blown up a, a child's toy, maybe a, a beach toy, a float, And you blew it up in the morning and and it was cooler outside and the sun had not fully risen. And and oftentimes when the sun begins to pound upon that float that you've blown up, it begins to expand and and it is very pressured and you can feel like, well, if I don't do something, that thing's going to burst. And so, so oftentimes we just relieve some pressure. At times we we look for ways, even in our own lives, knowing who we are better than most, understanding the dilemma that our own way has placed us in, we look for something that might just relieve a little pressure because things are so tense right now and and things are are, are so close to explosion that, that I just need a little pressure relieved. And do you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't relieve just a little pressure. It's as if he stomps on the float. He just obliterates the float, so to speak, that we were trusting in, the thing that we were trying to nurse along, the thing that we were trying to in some way preserve. God just he, he annihilates even the float. Why would God spend nearly three chapters dealing with our impossible situation? Because he is not trying to make us feel better about ourselves. Instead, he, he wants us not just to feel, but to recognize that we are not better. We are broken, battered, bereft of any possible means of attaining favor, position, or standing with God. At times we start to even look at ourselves and God in cooperation with our salvation. 
And God's not about that. Have you ever seen someone stuck before? How many of you, how many of you grew up where there was snow on the ground in the winter? How many of you have ever done that? Okay. How many of you said, listen, I've known nothing but sand on the ground in the winter? And several of you. I think it works for sand or snow, but have you ever seen someone stuck in either? And, and, and they're pushing. And sometimes you'll see someone, I've seen people stuck in snow before and, and they got caught in whatever. And, and sometimes if there's no one there to help, they're outside of their car and they're kind of pushing and pushing and, and they're, they're getting a little movement, but they just can't quite, they don't have enough strength. And so you join in and, and your combined efforts are just enough to do what was necessary to be done. How often do we see God as the great helper of mankind? It looks something like this. With me and God, there's nothing we can't do. He's going to take my efforts and finally we'll have what we need to do something worthwhile. But this is not the message of the Bible. Jesus in addressing this very issue in Luke chapter 18 beginning in verse 26 and they heard it said who then can be saved the disciples are asking and he that is Jesus said the things which are impossible with men are possible with God and notice Jesus doesn't say these things that are impossible with men are possible with God on your side. They're possible with you and God. Jesus said, no, with man, this is impossible. But with God, with only God, with God, all things are possible. Clearly, this has not been the message of Romans, God and a little help from man. Instead, it's as if whatever direction we turn, we are entangled with another cobweb of sin and condemnation and law and highlighting our dilemma. Again, verse number 19, he just goes on and he kind of wraps up the dilemma of mankind. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All are born under the law. Every mouth is stopped. All the world is guilty before God. And no flesh justified in his sight. We have been confronted by the knowledge of our sin. And you and I would be wise to in no way, shape, or form attempt to wiggle ourselves out of it. Spurgeon told the story, of course, many years ago of a service that was unfolding. And it was attended by the great poet Robert Burns. Burns was seated next to a young lady that he did not know, but as the service began to unfold and as the preacher began to read the text, he could see that she was under conviction, troubled by the scriptures that were being read and then explained by the pastor. And Burns, as he saw her discomfort, took out a little scrap of paper wrote these words and then slid the note to the young lady. 
And the words were, fair maid, you need not take the hint, nor idle texts pursue. Twas only sinners that he meant, not angels such as you. None of us are the angels. We are the sinners. Where does this leave us? It leaves us without excuse. There is nothing you can say in your own defense. All the world has become guilty before God. Or we might say it this way. All the world should now acknowledge their guilt before Almighty God. So how do we begin to move beyond our dilemma? Notice there is the hint of the dawning. It is faintly visible now on the horizon. Yes, the dilemma is real, but the dawning is now visible. Look in your Bible and look at verse number 21, Romans chapter 3. There are two words that that open this verse and quite frankly, they open some new section, some new wonderful truth to which God the Holy Spirit now is exposing us. If you mark things in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline or circle or in some way, shape or form, note the words, but now. It goes on and it says, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But now, what an incredible turning point and what an incredible shift we make from one important doctrine to another. There are um, fewer than a hundred, there is some debate about this, but there are somewhere in the 90s, the number of mountains in the United States which would include Alaska, in the United States that are are mountains that are 14,000 feet or higher. They're referred to commonly as 14ers. Colorado is the state that has the, the greatest amount of them. In fact, that is still somewhat debated as to the exact number, but commonly understood there are 58 14ers in the state of Colorado. I'm, I'm not a mountain climber, but I have had the privilege to hike several 14ers. There is one that is my favorite, and it's called Long's Peak. It is a spectacular climb. You start very early in the morning. You start at about 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning with the hike. You'll see the sun come up, and it is certainly a beautiful dawning. But there's something that radically changes the hike. You start early in the morning and it is mostly trail hiking until you pass tree line. Tree line, which is about 12,000 feet where no trees are going to grow. And then you continue on with trail hiking until you come to a massive field of boulders. It it is simply called the boulder field and and you traverse these boulders. You, You clearly don't want to twist an ankle. You don't want any injury here because you've got a lot of hiking to do and you've already done a lot of hiking. The the boulder field takes you as you traverse these boulder fields to a primary critical location in the entire hike and the whole hike changes. You get to a place that's referred to as the keyhole. 
at Long's Peak. The keyhole, you can, you can see it clearly from about 12,000 feet, but 12,300 feet, you are standing at the keyhole. The, the rock formation actually is constructed in such a way that it appears you're, you're going through this sideways keyhole. And once you pass through the keyhole, everything changes. The, the, the danger level of the hike rapidly increases, but the beauty of the hike I mean, it was beautiful all the way up until the keyhole, but it is staggeringly beautiful once you pass to the other side of the mountain. You have left one side of the mountain and, and you pass through this next side and, and now you begin to traverse the ledges and then the trough and then the narrows and then the home stretch and then the summit. And the whole hike changes at the keyhole. And you know, there are two words in the book of Romans. And he simply says, but now. I realize this and I know it. I know we, we spend so much time in the book of Romans. I mean, I mean, we've heard week after week about our dilemma. We've heard about our problem. We've heard about our sin. And, and God, I believe, in his wisdom said, and, and don't ever forget the but now where I brought you from. Don't forget how miraculous it is that I could take a sinner such as are you and transfer you from one side of the mountain to the other side where in a sense we might say the best is yet to come. We do find in this dawning something that has now been unearthed. It's been there all along, but now we can see it. Now there is something that we can actually lay our eyes on, and that is righteousness that comes apart from the law. How in the world can these things be? Paul is addressing these things that have been there all along. All throughout the pages of scripture from Genesis, and we'll see it clearly all the way through the book of Revelation, righteousness apart from the law. That there is this picture that God put in front of his people over and over and over again, this sacrifice, blood must be shed. There is one that will pay the price so that another can live. This is the message all throughout scripture and it's always been there, but now it is so boldly proclaimed. You know, there are times when, when there's something in a sense like it's, it's right under our feet or right under our nose. How many of you have ever asked for something that you had in your hand? I, I, I asked, for, I was looking for my phone the other day. I'm looking for my phone and I'm not kidding. I said, I can't, where is my phone? And it's right here, okay? It's, it's really, thank you for not laughing because some of you are saying we need to pray for him more, okay? There are times these things that are, are right there, we've been, in a sense, walking on top of them. It was just a month ago, a guy named Adam Clark bought a puppy for his nine-year-old daughter, Alicia. And the dog is a Lagoto Ramalo. I can't even say the name of the dog. Lagoto Roman Yolo. Does, has anyone ever heard of this dog before? Well, then I said it correctly. Okay, very good. 
So he bought this dog. Now the dog is, is more of a rare breed, but the dog's skill is to actually hunt, sniff out truffles. And so it has this incredible scent and it can sniff them out and find them. Well, it's just a puppy. And so he brought the dog home for his daughter, Alicia, and they were excited. There are some fields in their area. They were excited about taking the puppy out on its first field hunt. And so very shortly, this just happened just uh, just a couple weeks ago. They took the dog, Ollie, out and Ollie starts to just sniff around, just a little puppy. And all of a sudden, Ollie stopped, I mean stopped dead and started just intensely digging. And of course they were interested, maybe they found some some truffles and, and they bent down to see what Ollie was digging out. Ollie found several gold sovereigns. They took these gold coins and they had them evaluated. They're worth over $8,000. I will tell you, I do know the breed of this dog now. Golden Retriever, okay? And so that's actually what I think the dog is. These things have been there for years right by their house, but a little dog came and said, hey, let me show you something that you've been walking over maybe for years. Do you know what God the Holy Spirit is beginning to do? He's beginning to unearth a treasure and it is available for all who would have it. One man said it this way, as far as salvation is concerned, there are only two religions that, is ever, that the world has ever known or will ever know. The religion of divine accomplishment, which is biblical Christianity, and the religion of human achievement, which includes all other kinds of religion by whatever names they may go under. Another commentary said, God justifies the ungodly, not the well-intentioned. Paul has brought us to a place where we are undeniably the ungodly. Our good intentions are not what God is interested in. God has gone to great lengths in the opening pages of this book to detail the fact that we all qualify as the ungodly. Have you ever been disappointed that you didn't qualify for something? You applied for something and and it looked hopeful, it looked promising, but all of a sudden you hear the word back that, I'm sorry, you don't qualify. The title of the message today is, you qualify. You actually meet all the conditions for God to do something for you that you and I cannot do for ourselves. You qualify because the only necessary quality that you have to recognize is I stand sinful and condemned before God. And that makes you fit for what God has to offer. Jesus made it clear He said in Matthew chapter five, verse number 20, for I say unto you that except your righteousness, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. When people heard Jesus say this, our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness that is taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, people understood, The righteousness taught by the scribes and Pharisees, who can do that? Not even the scribes and the Pharisees. 
What Jesus is helping us understand is there is no human righteousness that can satisfy God's holiness. Romans chapter 3, verse number 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God cannot lower his standards. The law is the law. And now the law, along with the whole assembly of the prophets that had gone on before, stand as witnesses to the fact that there is a righteousness that can be received apart from our own keeping of the law. I can be righteous and and I can gain this righteousness without my earning it by the keeping of the law. How is this possible? So let's go beyond our dilemma and past this beautiful dawn and let's find the answer that is exclusively housed in our deliverer. Look at verse number 22, Romans chapter 3. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The great chasm that exists between God and man can be resolved through only one means. And that is by the perfect righteousness of God, which comes only by simple, childlike faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. The law was exacting. There's no wiggle room offered. But even the law itself attests to the fact that Christ provided all that was necessary. He satisfied the law. Look at verse 25 and 26, Romans chapter three. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That word is a, a wonderful word. I know we don't use that word a lot, but it is a wonderful word, propitiation. It means something has been appeased. Someone has been satisfied. There is nothing else that is left to do. The problem of debt has been fully resolved, propitiation. This is something that, again, is seen all throughout Scripture. And this satisfaction, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It is entirely found in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Okay, imagine with me, if you will, that you are driving down Brent Lane the, the, the road right out in front of the Crown Center. And you're driving rather quickly. In fact, I suspect that the speed limit on Brent Lane is probably 35 or 40 miles an hour. And let's say you're doing an easy 70 down Brent Lane. And all of a sudden, you see these, these friendly lights behind you. And, um, and you know they're telling you to pull over, but you're not pulling over. 
And so you actually increase your speed and you start actually blowing through traffic lights. So not only are you speeding, now you're going through traffic lights. Miraculously, you hit no one, but you have gone through several lights. You're weaving in and out of traffic. And finally, you can't get any further. Other policemen have joined along and they have barricaded and stopped you and, and you stop and get out of the car. And you have your driver's license, registration proof of insurance, which they quickly ask you for. And then they said, now, I know you like to go fast and you like to go for rides. You're gonna go for another ride. And you go for a ride in the backseat of their patrol car. Well, you, you are, are given a court date and you're going to see a judge and the judge hears what's taking place. The arresting officer is there and, and they begin to go through all that you've done and the judge is none too pleased. So the judge looks at you and he's going to throw the book at you and he does. In fact, the fine that he is going to legally, justly lay on you is $6,500. Now, you are a, let's just pretend, because we have some here, you are a freshman, okay? $6,500 might just as well be a million dollars because you had barely enough money to put in your car. In fact, you ran out of gas and that's how the police got you, okay? <laughs> so you are curious as to how am I gonna do this and I don't know, but you had some family that heard about your situation and they came to the, the court hearing and, and your older brother who is, is working and, and taken care of, he hears that the, the fee is $6,500 and he goes and he's going to pay your $6,500. Takes out his checkbook, he walks over to the clerk and he begins to write the check. He says, judge, I'll pay the fine. And so he writes out the check. And as soon as he starts writing out the check, you start walking out the door and you've got a little spring in your step. And you even walk by the officer. Now, shame on you for doing this, but you walk by the officer and you said, see ya. And you're just walking out. And the officer kind of, you know, gently, you know, takes your arm and he says, hey, what right have you to leave this courtroom? Let me tell you what you're not going to say. You're not going to say, check my record because your record says you are as guilty as homemade sin. What you're gonna say is you're going to say, check to see about the payment. And if the payment has been made, you can walk free. It is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, that a full payment was made and propitiation, satisfaction was found. There are none that can come to the child of God whose sin has been fully satisfied. There is none that can come to the child of God, not Satan himself, and hold up anything that says, here is the account of his sin, because there is another that is held, which says paid in full. This is what is provided by Jesus Christ. This is our deliverer. Some of you may still be striving to earn your way to God. 
It will never happen. There is none righteous. No, not one. You are, you are invited to come to God to receive a righteousness that is not earned by you, but paid through the goodness, the kindness, the, the mercy and the grace of another. His payment, not your record, is what is necessary. And some of you have been saved by faith, but you are trying to live the new life, the old way. The same grace that saved you is the grace that can sustain you. I'm looking forward to our opportunities to explore not only saving grace, but sustaining grace as well.